you know, science fiction is, is in a lot of ways, especially, you know, film and television, it's more of a superset than a subset. It's like within the context of a Star Trek episode, you could do a, a medical emergency, you could do an action show, you could do a, a police show, you could do any of these shows within that context, which is essentially exactly the same as any other show, but it wasn't perceived that way. Hi, I am Jeffrey Allen Schechter, and welcome to Writer's Room Pros, a podcast of conversations with TV and film professionals where we talk about not just their work, but their approach to finding, developing, and ultimately telling stories for a living. This episode, we are thrilled to have Narain Shankar, the showrunner of Amazon's long-running series, The Expanse. Narain's professional journey began with him getting his bachelor's, master's, and PhD in applied physics and electrical engineering, followed by gigs on, among many others, Star Trek The Next Generation, The Outer Limits, CSI, Almost Human, and now both The Expanse and For All Mankind. In between nerding out together as two former members of the Science Fiction Book Club, Narain and I talk about science, pissing off Harlan Ellison, interviewing Isaac Asimov, intergalactic tribalism, spray-on science fiction, his best-worst experience as a young writer, the future of The Expanse, and what show he would love to write an episode of. And now, Narain Shankar. Narain, if I had a nickel for every Bachelor of Arts, Master, and PhD in Applied Physics and Engineering that I've spoken to, I would have, oh God, what would I, I would have a nickel. That's right. Are you, are you like this weird science unicorn in the business? Um, I mean, in, 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 the, uh, in the entertainment business, um, I think you're seeing a little bit more you know, people coming out of the hard sciences background these days than you used to. Um, I think for the time when I started, um, yeah, I mean, a little bit of a unicorn in that sense. Um, I hadn't met anybody with that kind of background. Usually people go the other way. Usually people like, you know, Right. Try to start in the hard sciences, and then they go, "God, this is not for me." And then they go into liberal arts. I went the other direction. I actually went from liberal arts into the hard sciences, and then sort of back into the liberal arts. So it was a it was a stranger transition. Right. Well, it's. I mean, you know, from what I've I've you know stalked you online, <laughs> um, the um, yeah, and you had to change your profile pictures in a couple of places. We'll talk about that later. Okay, the um, the um, yeah, it's almost like you were like the reluctant scientist. But a reluctant scientist who went all the way through the, you know, doctorate. I don't. I don't know if I was reluctant. I mean, I loved. I loved science. You know, all through my entire life. I mean, you know, people would ask me like, you know, why did I end up, you know, being an engineer? And I'd go, well, because I love Star Trek so much. It was like I wanted to be an engineer. <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, I, I think what it was is for me is I was. I, I think at heart I'm a generalist. I just like lots of things, like you know, and so. And that's sort of how I was all through school. And when, when I, you know, when you, you get to university, it becomes like, oh, you got to say you're doing this. And so I said, like, because my dad was a doctor, I said, oh, I'll be a pre-med. But I really was thinking about, you know, medieval studies or French literature or classics. Or, and then I did that for a while. And then I said, you know, there's no way I'm going to get a job doing any of these things. So I love science, too. So I'll be an engineer. And it was like, it was like that kind of, you know, th- that level of thought. And, and so I just ended up in that track and it, it is probably, um, you know, that, that's that the analytical side of my brain is probably, you know, primary. Um, and so, you know, I, I stayed in that, in that, in that path for quite some time, but, you know, by the time I got into graduate school, um, and especially when I was working on my dissertation, 
you know, I, I just gravitated back to, into the humanities, into things like history and politics and the things that I always really, literature, things I'd really loved. And I had been in a, uh, in a literary society since I was a freshman, a fraternity in a literary society, in, where we did creative writing, you know, and would present those pieces to the, to the members. And, and, and so that really became kind of the thing I loved. And, and there was one, one day I was in this lecture at a, um, uh, it was a phenomenal course. It was a, uh, the history of American foreign policy taught by this great lecturer at Cornell uh, named Walter Lefebvre. And um, he just given this amazing lecture on the early Republic and Aaron Burr and like, and it was amazing. And I came out of the, I came out of it and I was walking back to work to my lab, which was sort of on the other side of campus. And I just looked at it and I was like, oh, God, I can't be an engineer anymore. <laughs> it, was like, it was literally the moment where it was like, I just was like, oh God. And then it was, and then it was, my parents are gonna be so disappointed if I don't finish. So I'll just gut it out and finish. And and so, and I, right. that's kind of what it was. You kind of are following to an extent in the footsteps, you know, Michael Crichton, Isaac Asimov, right? These were all guys well, who were- I'll take that company any day of the week, sure. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. I actually, it's, it's funny. Um, I, had, um, I had started a science fiction magazine in my high school back in mm -hmm. New York. Um, and I must have been 76, 77, because yes, yeah. I am that damn old, that, um, that I, um, uh, Asimov famously was listed in the Manhattan phone book. So like anybody could look him up. <laughs> so I, I said, you know what? We have our inaugural issue of Zizajuk. That was the name of the magazine because uh -huh. some like some guy, Zizajuk was the last name in the Brooklyn phone book. So we used Zizajuk that became the name of the magazine. Um, but so I looked up Asimov and said, yeah, I called him up and got him on the phone and, uh, and uh, said, you know, I'm a high school kid. I've got the science fiction magazine. Would you agree to be inter be interviewed for our inaugural issue. And he agreed and said, you know what, I'm doing this um, lecture at NYU, like on a Saturday morning. Mm -hmm. Why don't you come and you can interview me before the lecture? So, That's awesome. Right? It's amazing. So, okay, so I go and I, uh, I, interview, uh, I interview Asimov. And, um, and I don't remember, I must have, I'm sure if I asked my mom, because, you know, Jewish mom in Florida kept, kept every scrap of paper I was ever associated with. I'm sure she's got eight copies of Zizajuk somewhere in a, in a drawer. <laughs> but um, but um, I don't remember much of the Asimov in, interview. But the, the question I do remember is I asked him, how much science does a writer need to know in order to write science fiction? And his answer was, you need to know either a lot or a little. I know a lot. Ray Bradbury knows a little. Yeah. And, and I thought that was such a great answer that, that, you know, there's that line when you're writing mm -hmm. in science fiction where it's like, oh, yeah, we'll just make crap up and it'll be fine and we'll throw some like, you know, unobtainium, you know, like use like some weird made up words to, uh, to explain it all. And then there's the other people who are like, no, you know what? The, the more science, actual science you can drag in, it opens you up to better storytelling. Yep, absolutely. I mean, we, you know, we would call that on um, next generation spray on science fiction. It's like where a lot of times next gen was, was not really a science fiction show. It had much more in common with like, like the Klingon stuff, for example, was really very Shakespearean, sort of the influence and operatic. It was 
Um, and then very occasionally it would be inherently a science fiction show where like yesterday's enterprise was a time travel or a time paradox show like an episode like that but i yeah that's um that's a very uh, insightful thing to say about it because you see it today i mean there are shows that have that are called science fiction that have no science in them at all and then shows like you know the expanse that have that, that depend on it to generate drama and environments and um you know it's uh it's a it's a real distinction there was this uh book by the uh physicist uh, Michio Kaku called, mm -hmm. I think, uh, Science of the Impossible. I think, that, I think mm -hmm. that's the title of the book. Where it's interesting where he talks about like the three types of, you know, here's stuff that, you know, is at the edge of, we don't have this yet, but it's at the edge of our current technology, you know. Right. Then here's the stuff that we might be able to do in the future. We just, mm -hmm. don't, we, but we don't have the technology now. Right. And here's the stuff that's completely impossible. That, yeah. um, you know, that uh, we just, no matter what, we, we cannot travel faster than the speed of light. It's, yeah. it's, that is yeah. a, you know, the yeah. physics of the science of the impossible. So he breaks yeah. it down into all that stuff. And, and, and what felt really interesting to me is that all the things that you had in, uh, in the expanse, nothing felt like it was that third category, right? It, everything felt like it's in that, yeah. the, the, it's like ju just past our reach or we don't have it now, but we will down the road well, you know it, it required it required a lot of like just determination to do things in a certain way because when we started i think ty and daniel were like well they're going to throw out the whole idea of like you know ships that have to be under thrust to have weight because otherwise we're going to have people floating around all the time and i was like well why would we do that and it's like that I, like there's gravity plating is bullshit it's like you know that 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 doesn't work in this world it's like and so so we said, no, we're, we're not doing that. And I remember Mark and Hawk at one point, they were like, well, we got to communicate. Like, we've got to have people talking to each other. Like, and it's like, well, we can't. It's like, it's, it's a hard limit is the speed of light. And it's like, well, you, people don't know what's going on. And it's like, and, and I was like, that's the point. <laughs> that's the point. And we, 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 and then I think they, they, they totally embraced it because they realized they would they would bitch all about time about oh the cell phone has ruined like you know uh, horror movies and and thrillers it's like because you can be in communication and they realize by having a hard limit to communication in terms of the speed of it 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 actually opened up dramatic possibilities for us is that things could be happening over here that you weren't sure of over here and and they suddenly oh my god that's a different way to do an action scene it's like when you are looking at events that you can't affect where the outcome has already happened, it's not about changing the outcome. What it is is about is, is about the suspense of not knowing what is going on now. And so, and that, that allows you to do things in a different way. And so these are, these were all of the ways that we would strive to maintain reality. And, and, you know, I'm not going to say the laws of physics, but it's like, honest fidelity to what the actual setting was you know we always would talk about space as a character in the show right that means the hostile environment the scope of it the distance between things the things that, the speeds at which things move um and seem not to move even though they're moving really really fast but not fast relative to one another it's like these are all the things that give the show its signature would it be right to say it's science forward it's really it's really story drama forward but it is because it's not really i mean you know we are 
the scenes are constantly informed by like you know the realities of space or the realities of of physically moving in an accelerating ship i mean it's like all of that stuff is in the show we don't dwell on it we don't it doesn't become like um you know a heart like, like it's not like um you know oh boy i'm trying to think of an example oh, look like like um an, an author i love kim stanley robinson his his you know his mars books for example he goes into incredible detail about the geology about the science it's like that's not what we do in a, in our show we don't dwell on the science about it but it absolutely informs the drama and so we try to maintain those elements like the only thing that that we really fudge i would say consistently or try to hide is time is is like the time between things like how long it takes to get from one place to another um but you know within the the elements of the world that we've created even those aren't fudged too much yeah i guess you, you kind of kept stuff kind of i don't want to say local you know when you're dealing with space travel but you well, know it's like you also have multiple you have like these multiple stories so you're able to jump to different places which kind of i helps i think with the time issue it does uh, the, the guys who wrote the book ty frank and daniel abraham it's like if you ask them sort of like you know what's the thing that makes it all work well it, what they built for the show was a highly fuel efficient fusion drive and what that allowed was mm -hmm. travel at like one-third g thrust pretty much within the solar system and so when you can do that Getting from Earth to Mars isn't that hard. It doesn't take that long. You know, getting to the outer planets becomes conceivable and, and feasible. And so once you just make one thing and you extrapolate from there, it changes a lot of things. And so um, that's like the that's the invention that makes that world run. And um, and so, you know, once that happens, then you just start extrapolating out. I remember as a as a kid going back to my science fiction nerd high school days. Um, where I was a member of the uh, science fiction book club. Yeah, um, oh, I I was too. I have, I have, I, I was. I actually have. Where is it? Um, I'm looking at my bookshelf. Um, I have, I have my original copy of Dune from that I bought <laughs> with the science yeah, my... fiction book club for four four books for ten cents or some shit like that. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. And it's it was every month. Like you got. Did you get three books every month or you had to choose? I don't remember. What I remember is- Or you got three and you send the ones back you didn't want or something? Yeah. I don't, I don't remember how it worked. You didn't have to keep them, but yeah, but it was, but the thing I remember was how shitty they were. It's like the unknown pages and terrible yeah. glue. So the books were all- coarse. All, I remember the oh, coarse bindings. Horrible. They, yeah. they felt like so cheaply printed. Um, and so I, I, I found it kind of rummaging around like recently. And I said, that's got to go back on the bookshelf because I love that. <laughs> that's so funny. Yeah. I, 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 the reason why I brought it up was because I read um, one of the books that I got was um, the author was E.E. E. Doc Smith. Oh, of course, yeah, of yes, Skylark, yeah. yeah, Sky, yeah. Skylark mm -hmm. of Space. What were your, see, the first four I remember, I had like the Golden Age of Science Fiction, I had the Foundation Trilogy, I had Dune. That I, I got then, that. Yeah, no, those okay. are the yeah, Foundation like, Trilogy. Uh, and yep. then there was another one, it's like the greatest science fiction stories of all time. They had, that was like an well, anthology. Oh, that yeah, was. those were, yeah, those were, it had like a collection, like it had Nightfall was in it. Yes, exactly, yeah. Nightfall. Yeah. This show is brought to you by Showrunner Industries, makers of Writers Room Pro. For more about the app and this show, make sure to check us out at 
writersroompro.com and follow us on Instagram at writersroompro. Now, back to the show. You know, one thing that I thought was really interesting about the expanse, and I and I, I don't mean to make this like I'm oversimplifying, mm-hmm. but well, I know you started you know, you started off in um uh Star Trek Next Generation. Mm-hmm. Um and I was a huge fan you know going way back but more original series but um, um but what was interesting is that back in the mid 60s when star trek was uh first being conceived um besides the infamous you know wagon train to the stars right. that roddenberry would talk about um the idea was to be this sort of like uh, the united nations you know on the bridge right you know mm-hmm. it, it, it was like all nationalities there, there was the russian you know so it's like obviously we're not at war with russia anymore and it's you know it's you know uh multi-ethnic you know mm-hmm. japanese and black and white so it was it, it, he had this image of the of the future that we've gotten past all of our petty mm-hmm. rivalries and now we're yep. all pulling together to create a better future whereas the expanse is struck me as almost mm-hmm. the the polar opposite message you know as we started branching out we started becoming more tribal and our petty differences grew into huge animosities and even like the united nations is kind of at least when the parts that i I'd watched seemed like the bad guys, and, and um, I don't know if I would quite agree with that. The um, I think I, I know. I think I know your show a little bit better than well. Um, than well, for sure that that's an accurate is an accurate characterization of Star Trek because that was very much informed by the '60s, and it was you know Kennedy's America and like you know going out into the world and 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 you know being non-belligerent at their core, you know, but like, you know, it was like sort of the American mission to the rest of the world. And we were going to be, and yes, the optimistic ideas that we had gotten past nationalism and all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. The expanse is more, I think, I wouldn't say getting worse about being tribal. I would say being the same about tribalism because it is a, it, it's a consistent thread in the show. You know, when you talk about tribalism in the expanse, Ty and Daniel were very deliberate in, in the way they described the colonization of the solar system, what they said was, you know, we're going to go out into, you know, to Mars and further out. Um, it's not just going to be, you know, blue-eyed, blonde-haired Nebraska cowboys. It's going to be Russians and Chinese and Indians and, and everybody. And so, and so, what happens in the expanse is that everybody goes out, everybody mixes together, everybody. It's it's just a it's a, a mixture of human ethnicities and racing uh, races and changing and mixes and everything. It's all out there. And the moment that different cultures begin to form, a different culture on Mars, a different culture in the belt, um, people once again start to tribalize. So it isn't about things getting worse. It's not like a dystopian future in which people suddenly become far more tribal than they are now. The idea was that it's going to kind of be the same because there's a human quality about, you know, once you get to that point where you can define yourselves as one thing and other people as the other, that's where tribalism begins. Because if you have conflicting, you have conflicting aims and goals and issues, different cultures, your language isn't like theirs. They don't care about the things that you care about. That's when problems start. And that idea of tribalism just runs all the way through the expanse. It runs constantly through every book. Um, and so it isn't 
it isn't really a, a dystopian future, but it's not a, certainly not a utopian future either. And um, Ty and Daniel are very, are very much the minds that, you know, um, that's kind of the world. <laughs> I don't right. think they believe in utopias, but I don't think they really believe in dystopias either. Um, but but it's always a struggle, you know, and if it, if it bends towards decency, um, I think that's true. Uh, decency doesn't always win. <laughs> um, that's also true. Yeah, but that's a very different message from Roddenberry's message. No? It is, but the Roddenberry's message, and, and I think we struggled with this a bit in Next Generation, in where our central cast were, were kind of so perfect that they didn't seem human. And, and it was like, they were, you know, people weren't jealous. You know, alcohol didn't get you drunk. You know, people weren't angry. Everybody was peaceful. That's the world I live in. Alcohol doesn't well, get you drunk. Yeah, That's like all of it. It was, it was both the inherent appeal of that idea, that optimistic notion of the show, but it also kind of clashed with the idea of where does drama come from? <laughs> it comes from conflict and it comes from right. imperfection. It comes from people doing stupid things and being vulnerable and making mistakes. It's like, and so I think to some extent, Star Trek, you know, we, we would always, it forced you into, a, into a, a writing paradigm where you would go to the planet of the people with the problem, <laughs> right? And then you would right. solve the problem. Yeah. And so, you know, and, and to a certain extent, that was the original series as well, but the core characters of the original series were much more flawed and problematic, you know? And so they felt a little bit more real. I mean, Picard was a, was a wonderful, wonderful person. <laughs> I mean, the most gentle, caring, thoughtful, fair captain you could ever imagine other than the fact that you can't imagine that guy ever being promoted to captain. <laughs> so, you know what I mean? It's like, it was, it was just philosophically a different thing. And, and it was, and it was in reality, it was a different show because it was, it was dealing with societal issues by way of allegory in this science fiction setting, which is what a lot of science fiction does. And, and one of the great strengths of science fiction, but it sort of divorced itself from, from the uglier sides of human emotions and drives and motivations. Um, we don't really shy away from that kind of stuff on The Expanse. And, um, you know, it's a different era, though. It's a very different era. Yeah. And, and there, we had so many people who worked on The Expanse who grew up watching Next Generation and loving it. And, you know, and, and when you go back, there are some beautiful, wonderful episodes of that show, um, without question. Um, but, you know, again, different time, different era. Yeah, right. And uh, also, well, I mean, obviously the country changed a lot you know, from, yeah. you know, from then to now. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's kind of interesting. So maybe, maybe, maybe the thing with The Expanse is that it's, 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 not, it's neither utopian nor dystopian. It's just like, no, we're just humans. And the problems we have today don't think that they're going to be gone in the 23rd yes. century. Yes, exactly. You know, right. just, we're still going to be dealing with it, right? It's, yep. just, it's, it's sort of a, you know comment yes, on the, right. the permanence of human nature yep. which um you know so i don't know you may want to write that down soon in case anybody else i think there was, an, there, was an, there was a review years ago i think in the in, in, in the of all unlikely places the federalist um where they said is the expanse a utopia or a dystopia and the answer is it's neither <laughs> and they were they were pretty much right on the money i know that from the other 
stuff that you've done, you know, CSI and you know, even a, you know, two and a half men episode, you know, which that sounds like there's a story there somewhere. Um, yeah. So, so I, I don't want to say like, like, do you find yourself constrained by, do, do people preconceive you as, oh, you're the science fiction guy or you're the science guy? And is that something you want to get, get past? Because I know, um, uh, Kurt Vonnegut, I forget in, in one of his books, had some in his preface said that that science fiction he, he was talking about publishing but science fiction he said is a sort of a uh the the filing draw labeled science fiction <laughs> is often mistaken for a urinal <laughs> so, <laughs> so i don't know that that's still true i mean it's not no it's it's definitely not true these days i i do think that you know the industry tends to be very ready and and almost eager to characterize people like I started out on Next Generation, so at that time, you know, there was so little science fiction out in the world that if you were a writer on Star Trek, you couldn't even get an agent to read a Star Trek script it, because they're like, oh no, no, that's its own thing. It's like, no, you got to write like a, a a spec for a cop show or a, or a lawyer show or a doctor show because that's that's like real television. You're just a weird Star Trek thing over there, and that was that was the perception of it, and people didn't really understand that. You know, science fiction is, is in a lot of ways, especially, you know, film and television, it's more of a superset than a subset. It's like within the context of a Star Trek episode, you could do a, a medical emergency, you could do an action show, you could do a, a police show, you could do any of these shows within that context, which is essentially exactly the same as any other show, but it wasn't perceived that way. Um, and I, and I, and like in my personal career, like the first 10 years I did science fiction shows and I made a deliberate effort with my agent. I said, listen, you got to get me out of this, this genre because I didn't want to be, I didn't want to be ghettoized in that sense as a, as a creative, because like I didn't want to be known as the guy who could only do that. And so then I started doing cop shows and procedural shows for like the next 10 years. And then when I, when I got at the end of CSI, I was literally just getting just tons of, of police procedurals thrown at me. It's like, it's like, it's like that guy's like, and somebody said, would you be willing to do genre? And go, yeah, <laughs> I love genre. I started there, but they don't, they like to have that characterization of you. And, and then it was, and then the next one was, oh no, he's just a broadcast guy. He hasn't done streaming. It's like, like, it's like, they just want it. They, they need to have something, a box to put you in because it's helpful for them. And so, it, it does require you just to be attentive to it um, in terms of that perception out there, because it does require constant reinvention, I think, to stay fresh. And that's probably a good thing. I think so. Though, I mean, the the wisdom going back uh, a million years ago was you wanted to like pick your sub-genre as a writer and kind of stick to it. I, I didn't, but that was that was the advice I was getting. Oh, you want to be the you you want to be the half hour comedy guy. You want to be the one hour police procedural guy. I mean that was yeah. It was. You know, and then yeah, and then you, know, was. Uh, you want to be the TV guy, not the film guy, or the film guy, not the TV. You know, it was like it was that, very that, pigeonholed. That distinction was meaningful though. The, the TV and film distinction was quite meaningful because mm -hmm. it was like a such a different skill set. Because the 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 feature side was just like you know oh fuck the writers get them out of there it's like that that was the idea right it was we'll just get a different set they'll do a different pass on it it's a director's medium 
the television side was an entirely different business. And I mean, I, I actually, you know, I experienced a little bit of that early on. And I was like, fuck, fuck this feature business. This is bullshit. It's like, <laughs> it's like because I, they, they, there was just the, the timeframes, the budgets, all of these other, all these elements conspired to, to create a, to me, a much stupider development process. It's mm -hmm. like, whereas in television, you got into a show, you got into a room, and if you were with smart people, you would actually make things. You would actually write stories right. and craft them and rewrite them and put them on screen and then move on to something else. And to me, I, I like that the, the pace of it was so different and you just learned so much more. And it was like about, about filmmaking as a process. And now look where we are. We're, we're at a point where the feature guys are desperately trying to get into television. Right. It's like, and I, I remember, you know, you know, maybe 10 plus 10 years, maybe more than that ago. I remember listening to like feature guys at like some WGA thing. You said, oh, yeah, TV's really easy. TV's so easy. Just right <laughs> and then and then seeing feature guys in television look like deer in headlights when they when when they have no idea what to do. And it's like it, it has been a shocking transformation in the business. Um and I think that people have sort of come to appreciate it. And also, you know, the two things are now so much similar in terms of so much more similar in terms of budget, technical elements, the level right. at which you can deliver things. Um, you know, so it, it's we're in that one of those transitional phases as these things settle out. It's just it's just going to be entertainment and hopefully people won't have bad attitudes about things anymore. Yeah, well, I think arguably the better writing is in television these days. I would totally. I, find, I mean, I find that I find that like a little shocking that you're saying like ten years ago, like feature guys were like, ah, TV's easy. It's like, well, you, you never saw Breaking Bad, you never saw Soprano, you know, like like the the really like the 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 shows that began sort of the modern era of of you know exemplary TV writing. It's like that's. That's a magic trick. It's so every week. It's a magic trick that you, you put together an episode like that as compared to a movie where you got three or four years and, you yeah. know, and it's like, I know. yeah, so it's, it's just interesting to hear people yes. say that. Hi, I'm Sally Richardson Whitfield, and I am the executive producer of The Gilded Age and one of the directors, and you are listening to the Writer's Room Pros podcast. What was the thing that you feel that you've done, either an episode or an entire project, that you, you say, this is me, this is, this is, you're not going to find a more pure expression of Narain Shankar? Uh, well, there's, there's one, there's one that, that's, I can't, pro I can't really talk about right now, unfortunately, that's probably the, my most favorite thing that I've written, um, but, um, mm -hmm. but. When I read your your initial thing about best worst, it started it, it got me thinking about those experiences, and even you know you know even like when you talk about like oh pilots that you wrote and things that didn't go, it's like you know it always does come down to like the blame thing. You know, <laughs> it's like you go oh that stupid network or that terrible actor or that right, dumb right, right. guy who didn't appreciate my genius. Yeah. You know, it's Damn like it, you ruined it again. <laughs> always it always goes to that and i didn't really i didn't really want to there's, there's a million reasons I, I always like to tell people on shows like nobody sets out to make anything bad right and and it takes literally a thousand things to go perfectly right to have something great 
and it takes like three things to go bad to make it a disaster. You know, and that's that's why things like, you know, it's just hard to make great things. But but when you when you wrote about the best worst thing, it actually got me thinking about about a really it was a, it was a really unusual experience. I was doing a show called uh, UC Undercover and this was in 2001. It was a cop show. It was on NBC. It only lasted like 13 episodes. Um but it was it was um you know it was a strange one it was um it was it was about the federal marshal service um the showrunner was a, a guy named Shane Salerno who is a actually a really talented writer mostly he's done features um he did he did Armageddon he wrote Armageddon but he also he he wrote he's done tons of things he's working on the uh the Avatar sequels I believe at this point or he he's, he's credited on those largely a feature guy. Um, but he he was a huge admirer of Miami Vice. <laughs> you know, I mean, he loved the show. Just that, that combination of cop stuff and high style and music and pop culture. And he saw the show called UC Undercover about the Federal Marshal Service. And it was it was kind of like that. It was it had it had, you know, he wanted to make like a serious cop drama, but also with sort of like high style action and lots of music. And it was, you know, I mean, and Shane was really young. It was his first show. There, it's very hard to run a show. He had assembled a very, a very unusual group of, of writers. Um, I was his, I was his second. Um, but there were people like who had never done television before. They're like, you know, journalists. There was like a playwright, Stephen Gerges from New York, who was, who was absolutely, um, you know, one of the finest writers I've ever worked with. Um, and he's gone on to be an amazing award-winning playwright in New York City. Um, but but the show wasn't working. You know, Shane was a night owl. He like he worked super late. He kept the staff late. It changed his mind a lot. It's like one guy was going through a divorce. The young guys didn't know what to do. It's like it's like it was it was really hard. And and season one shows are always always difficult. And so we're trying to find the show. And in the course of the show, like I. I wrote an outline about um, a, a pair of sociopathic brothers who were very, very wealthy people who were um, essentially just because they were psychos, they were funding like terrorists. They would like get weapons and give them to the terrorists because they liked watching people kill. You know, it was and it was just it was pretty sick. And Shane loved the outline so much. He said, I want to write this with you. And, and, and he was like, and he goes, like, I'm going to write the first two acts, and then you write the second two. So you go write the second two. And so I wrote the second half of the script. And then Shane said, I haven't had time to write the first two, so I want you to write the, the, you write the other. And so I wrote the, the second half first and the first half second, and then <laughs> put the whole script together. And somehow it was working. And Shane was going to take a pass on it and rewriting it. And, and it was, it was, it was. It was pretty, I mean, it was pretty dark and it, it opened with like a sarin gas attack at like a, a, at a football stadium. We were shooting this thing in Vancouver um, and the show looked great. It had a big high styles, a big network show. It looked really good. And, and so Shane's taking a pass on it. We're in prep and I'm in bed and I get a call like at like seven o'clock in the morning or something. And I can't remember what time it is. And Shane goes, um, a terrorist just flew a plane into the World Trade Center. Um, we're not doing a show about domestic terrorism. We're shutting down. Fox is throwing out the script. 
um, the 20th was, or NBC, whatever it is, they're throwing out the script. Um, we're shutting down for a couple days. And, wow. and that, September 11th. So we go downstairs, September 11th happens. And I forget how long we were down for, but we were, we were shut down for a while. And then the staff came back and we were in this really weird, it was like the ESPN sports complex down in like Olympic and Bundy. It was this big, crazy building, like this gigantic thing. And we were like in the corner of it and the the rest of the building was empty. All the, it was so weird. And it was, and that just, that just like enhanced the weirdness of the entire endeavor. And the whole staff come together and everybody was like in shock, right? I mean, again, you know, post September 11th, if you remember that time, and everybody was in shock. And we were like, what the fuck are we going to do? And the director who was in prep, Ken Fink, phenomenal director that I, we ended up, this was the first thing we did, but we ended up working together for, you know, 10 years on CSI and, um, and was a good friend. He had just come off of Homicide and he's just an amazing director, documentarian. He was in prep. There's no flights up to Vancouver. And we have to actually come up with an episode while we're in prep. And, and so we put him in a car and we drove him to Vancouver because there's no flights. And, and I think it was Shane and Shane said, okay, we're going to do, um, an episode about a prison riot. And there's this place in Vancouver called Crease Clinic, which was this, it was like an old hospital and it had, it had been shut down and everybody in town used it. It was in the X-Files, it's been everything in Vancouver for years. And you could make it into anything. It could be an insane asylum, it could be a hospital, it could be a prison. And just the physical structure of the building lent itself to it. And Shane said, we're gonna do a show about a prison riot. And, and we literally said, okay, we booked the show. We booked that location with no script. And we said, we're going to shoot it. And then the entire staff, just over the next few days, we just said, this is act one, this is act two, this is act three, this is act four. And we just wrote it. And we sent the acts one by one up to the director. And he was calm as a cucumber. And and it ended up being maybe one of the best episodes of the show. It was like this. And so it was this incredible like terrible, terrible moment, but it really became a moment of unity for the staff and everybody just pulled in the same direction under incredibly difficult circumstances and emotionally very difficult circumstances. And somehow we delivered this episode and somehow the director shot it and somehow the actors made it work. It was just bonkers. And I think that that is... That is one of those stories that I, I haven't, I mean, we never talked really about it, you know, ever. And, um, and it's, you know, it, it's, I, I haven't, I, I think I have a copy of the script somewhere, but it's one of those things where it's hard to even look at because it takes me back to that moment. And, and I remember my wife, you know, telling, telling me like when she read the script, she goes, because I had like a hundred people dying at this, at this, you know, this opening terror attack. And she said, that's just too many. That's ridiculous. That could never happen. And, and it was, it's just one of those things that I I won't forget because it was, it was, it was just a, couldn't have imagined it. (laughs) Couldn't have imagined it. And it was, um, that really was kind of like, you know, uh, best worst. (laughs) 
Jeez, wow, that's like yeah. it's incredible. Yeah. Well, it's it's also it it that's does <laughs> kind of uh it does show you know kind of I don't want to say like you know like the old well you know burn you know if you, when you burn your bridges it kind of like makes you <laughs> very very motivated to find a solution. So it's like okay we can't do that episode we got to do something. We're gonna do a we're gonna do a prison break. and then suddenly every just like you know you know all these brain cells that weren't being worked because you were gonna be doing this. Now the, all these brand new ones are firing. It was, it was, it was really just like, you know, it was just, everybody was like, just putting your head down and just make it work. And it was like, it was, um, yeah, just in a, in a span of a few days, we had a script that we prepped and we wrote and we shot. Wow. Incredible. Well, thanks. Thanks for telling me that. That's, that's, yeah. a, that's a wild story. In case you haven't clued in on this, I'm a, besides the science fictioner and fellow science fiction book club member mm. or, you know we'll, yes, yes. did they we'll do the secret handshake later you know with the <laughs> so um yeah um so i'm a huge science nerd you know big kind of a gearhead and uh, so we totally love talking science and story no, but um yeah, and but, i love i gotta say i love your product i love writers oh, you. it's like i I, I have to say it it's like it's it's been a great um, it's been a great tool for us. I've done now a bunch of, I've developed a pilot. I've done a season, two seasons of The Expanse on it now. Absolute lifesaver for us. This, I didn't, I never intended this podcast to be like, you know, you know like hard, hard advertising for Rise Room Pro, but I, I, I appreciate the, I appreciate That's the right. I'm happy, happy to plug it. I, I tell people about it all the time. And this, it's six and done, no? We're... Um, sort of, uh, there, it is, uh, Amazon is ending, uh, Ending in a season six, there's an ending of a kind um, at the end of book six, which is which is what was one of the things we planned for. There is more of the story to tell, and you know maybe who knows? We'll see what happens. I guess you didn't you didn't get into the George R. R. Martin situation where like no, you, were, you, were, you were writing faster than the books were coming out. Ty and Daniel, Ty and Daniel were writing faster. Uh, they were okay, they were, <laughs> they were determined to finish it because it has it has you know. Um, there's an ending, uh, of sorts, as I said, at the end of book six, and there's a different ending in the end of book nine. Terrific. All right. Narain, thank you so much. It was such a joy, My real pleasure. pleasure. And, uh, yeah, best of luck on season six and with whatever it is you've got coming after that, I'm anticipating maybe a light comedy, you know, just, ex you know, kind of expand your horizons a little bit. Don't be so No, man. No, my maybe my favorite show uh, was uh, one of my favorite shows of all time recently has been Archer. So, <laughs> so you never know. Um, that's I, I'm I'm going to make it my life's mission to start that change.org campaign to get you an episode of Archer. Uh, um, uh, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much, and best of luck to you too. Thank you. Bye.